G'day, and welcome to The Writer's Lock, your number one podcast for incredibly niche readings and discussions of Pokemon fanfictions from the Nuzlocke community. I'm your host, Rainy. In this episode, we'll continue reading from our featured story locks, Grassadia, Ashes to Ashes, and The Returning All That We Are. Then, in our discussion segment, Garish Garchomp and Radif will return to help us answer one simple question. WTF is a Gajinka? We begin, as always, with a look into the world of Grassadia. In our last episode, Poppy was handed a chance to redeem herself and once again prove herself to her trainer. Grassidia by Glant Sherlock Chapter 10 Forget-Me-Not I was born from a flower which grew on my mother Bloom's shoulder. The petals opened, relinquishing my newborn form to the sun's light. It was bright and frightening. My first comfort was mother's hand, lifting me to her soft eyes. She nosed my head and named me Poppy, and I wanted nothing more than to remain in that blissful state forever. She took hold of my birth flower and with painful force tore it from her body and offered it to me. I grasped his stamen as if it were the most natural thing. A wave of a miraculous something washed over me. Mother told me it was magic. I discovered I could cause the flower to float. It whispered to me things I did not yet understand. Mother translated that this bloom which gave me life was my weapon and companion, that if I cared for it, I would be rewarded with powerful magic with which to defend myself from an unyielding world. But should we ever be apart, all of my gifts would be snatched away. For fairies of our kind cannot produce pixie dust of our own volition, only borrow from the flowers. The singular way to secure ourselves was to become Florgus, like her. Tend to your companion, embrace its strength, evolve, and make a pilgrimage to find a stone that shines brilliantly as the sun. For any floet who brings her tended flower to this sacred rock has earned the right to become a bloom once again. To this day, her words are the greatest truth I hold dear. So you see, Zuri, if what Lola's mentor says is true, and such a stone may be found in this vast barren place, I must accompany you. I understand my position on the team has been filled in my absence, but to Lola's credit, she has not forgotten her promise to me. All the same, I've pledged myself to aid in the coming trial. There is yet another irritant in her child's fairy tales that continues to eat at me. Illustrations, as she calls them, of knights swinging hone-edged carcasses at fire-breathing beasts. They've a death wish, to be sure. Arriving at a den with no magic at hand. Idiots. Whoever imagined such a farce overlooked one simple, natural fact. Humans in metal shells do not slay dragons. Fairies do. No, not myself personally. It is only the way of things. Don't believe for a moment your hands can hide your face. I see you smirking. Our journey is slowed by my search. It is imperative I check every crack and crevice for a shine or glimmer. This is the first concrete opportunity that has befallen me, and I must not overlook any possible hiding places. Your help is immense, between your speed and determination, and this time with you is a gift. You speak enthusiastically of your old home in the hills, days of buzzing about with your siblings, collecting pollen for your queen mother. I never realized you were descended from royalty. How does it work in Lola's stories again? That's right. I suppose we should all be calling you Princess Zuri, then. See? I can make quips at your expense, too. The merriment breeds pauses in our work, yet not a second that goes by feels wasted. I am merely delighted that you are with me on the dawn of my ascension. A warm pocket of air wells in me to know that I may share this moment with you, that when the time comes, you will be here to see it. Despite her promise, I observe Lola's boredom after a fruitless while. She kicks at the ground in her pacing and glances over at me. It is irritating. Could she not occupy herself with books or that mon machine of hers? Surely she has ways to keep busy. To my surprise, I hear Peaches give a genuine offer to pass the time with training, but we've not run into any wild since the sun was to our front. Oh, I'm sure it won't be long before we've all sunk our teeth into a good fight. Perhaps that will satiate the monotony. I've come too far. I will not concede to this girl. A high, melodious sound fills the canyon. It makes me cringe. There's not a single shock in my discovery of Felix wailing into the abyss. He puts a flipper to his ear and joyously absorbs the echoes that follow. 
Tragically, Timothy bounds to him and yips with all his might, producing a similar effect. Lola is not far behind with her whistling. The trio continue to make noise and giggle at themselves obnoxiously. Yes, I know they're just having fun, but could they possibly do it? The rumbles from the canyon walls reach my ears right as Peaches sounds the alarm. What slumbering beast they disturbed wastes no time erupting from the cliffside. Through dust and dirt burst a colossal worm, plated in gold and silver. Its claws leave gashes in the earth as deep as I am tall, and its tail swings high enough to eclipse the sun. Two young ones stand sentry at its feet, one larger than the other. Their collective wars are deafening. Bloodlust hungers in their eyes. Our trainer freezes. It's Felix who wraps his flippers around her and removes her from harm's way. Timothy crouches, Peaches flies, and you and I charge as one. The enemy is a towering thing, the likes of which none of us have encountered. I think of our previous trials. Even those monstrosities were diminished in wake of our new foe. I feel your hand. There is no fear in me. Peaches' green dust is the first strike. He goes for the biggest target, draining its strength before the rest of us have a chance to move. I follow with a barrage of my sharpest dust, aiming at the eyes. It slashes at myself and the cotton head, a blow we narrowly dodge. Below I see sparkling clouds of gold and white, commanded by you and Timothy, as you focus on the young ones. A blue shot of bubble-like dust flies through the air, and I see Felix on the attack while still shielding her trainer. The dragons fight back in vain. Even at their great size, we are able to hold them off with amazing ease, and it suddenly becomes a wonder to me as to why they would be so bold as to ambush a band of fairies so assuredly. The answer comes to me too late. A glint of red catches my eye. It is sudden and swift, and before I can discern what it is, my flower is nearly ripped from my grasp. Its stem is clamped in a great pincer from an insect whose coat is shiny and bright. It is cold to the touch. My chest aches with dread. Steel. As it moves, I cling tightly to my companion. Panic escapes as a scream when my hands slip the tiniest bit. My arms envelop it, nearly crushing the petals. I whispered pleas of forgiveness. I cannot let go. I must not let go. Even death would be a welcome friend over helplessness. I face the creature in time to see its other claw glow in preparation for a strike. Pixie dust shoots from my hand in desperation. Hitting the eyes, it impairs the thing's aim, and the searing punch merely grazes my back. But it is pain like I have never felt. It burns. It is poison. It kills fairies. I have seen it. I know. Mother, I cannot let go. Seeing you come to my rescue this time does not bring me relief. Only fear. I want to scream as you ignore my warnings. This is not something you can simply pelt pollen at. Stop. Stop that. Flee, damn you. You're hit. Your crash forms a dust cloud that I search frantically for signs of movement. It's faint and irregular, but I hear your buzzing. It is the sweetest sound in the world. The air clears to reveal your shaking arms lifting you up. I see the tear in your wing, and breath leaves me. You can't fly, and the creature is already preparing another attack. My eyes try to look at everything. You, our enemy, my flower. It is there my gaze rests the longest. I am weak. I am so weak, but... You need a shield. No. No, I can't. I grip my flower. All that I have ever had. My birth, my home, my lifelong friend. My weapon who granted me magic and flight allowed me to live for as long as I have. I dread what it would mean to lose it, and what it would mean to lose you. Very well. I gather as much pixie dust as I can muster. I breathe my goodbye and hear whispers of understanding. One shot, it propels me forward onto you, and I take the hit. In an everlasting moment, all the world is torn from me, ripped away so that I may once again endure every heartache and unhappy memory. They stab my heart and drag my soul down into the earth in an act so final it could only be death. Then it is brushed away by a gust of wind and magic. I smell sea salt and nectar. I feel sand. I see how dew sparkles when you brush the morning grass into the light. I foolishly think, trips? And then there is nothing.
And then there is your voice. You bring me back, you and your pollen. My eyes open to your crying face, and it might have broken my heart if you did not smile. A large drop of water splashes on my arm, and that is when I notice Felix with his flippers covering his mouth. His face is a waterfall. Both of you ought to stop that nonsense. I have but enough strength to reach my arm up and touch your broken wing. You say it can be fixed. I hope so. The fight is still happening. I panic. My flower? Where is it? Somehow, I roll onto my belly. You protest, but I must find it. My eyes search the area, which appears to be only limbs and pixie dust and dirt. Peaches brings the red steel insect to ground with more conviction than I've ever seen from him. Timothy barrages the last dragon with his magic. I take no further time to watch them. It is crucial that I find. There, right over there it lies, with more over there, and over there, everywhere. I call to it and listen. I hear nothing. All the roars and crashes around me, and the world has never been so quiet. I pierce the air with a wail and try to crawl forward. My tail drags across the dirt, bit by bit. No, Zuri, don't. Do not try to stop me. Tell Felix to quit his worrying. It needs me. My flower, it needs me. I'm the only... I'm the only one who can. Breathing becomes an impossible task. My strength fails me, and I collapse. I see the golden light from your pollen, but I feel nothing. There is not but your pleas for me to stay with you. Darling, I am trying. Once there was the sun, bright and warm and wonderful, shining like the love within my heart. Now there's no more sun. Winter has killed everything. And although it's dark December, forever, I'll remember sun. My body is so sore. I am lying on something soft. A cushion? No, larger. My eyes realize they can open. The walls lead me to believe I've returned to the white place. Those fears are put to rest when I see how small the room is. There are human machines I do not recognize, and a stale scent hangs in the air. A cloth is draped over my lower half. Lola is with me. She's curled up and asleep, her face merely an arm's length from me. Faint lines of salt move downward from her eyes, stains left by tears. I feel inclined to touch her face, but any and all strength fails me. It is as if the very air holds me in place. Something glints in her hand. Even in sleep she clutches it tightly, as if fearing it will disappear otherwise. I stare, and wonder what it could be, until I see it catch the light again. Its identity is unmistakable, a stone which shines like the sun. My chest falls. There it is. All that I have strived and worked for the key to my destiny. So close I could touch it. And somewhere out in that barren wasteland, my companion is torn and strewn across the dirt, dead and gone forever. Without it, I cannot float or produce dust. I can never become Floridus. My trainer kept her promise to me, but far too late. The weight of it all is crushing. It can't be true. No. No, 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 no. After everything, I cannot be damned this way. I let out a cry that springs Lola awake. I cover my eyes and wail in agony. The child implores me to calm down. I scream at her to leave. There is a commotion, urgent voices, and footsteps. A human hand touches me, and I sweep it away. All the world is pain and noise until a soft buzzing breaks through. You're hovering at the door, as though waiting for a signal. The sight of you dulls something inside, and your sad smile is almost reassuring. In your hand is a posy of baby blue darlings. By the sun, you remembered. You placed them in my lap. Their faint familiar whispers are welcome, and their brilliant color is an oasis in the stale, dull room. I clutch them to my chest in desperate worry. You understand what they mean, do you not? Do you truly feel this way? Your nod should convince me, but it doesn't. We sit alone for some time, rarely speaking. I wish not to, if possible. I'm fearful of what I might say. Holding your arm like a stem is a comfort, but looking at you incites more pain. You are here, and alive, 
which can only mean my most precious companion is lost, and that I shall remain useless for an eternity. Am I horrid to feel regret? If I let go, will you be gone as well? Please, please forgive me. Please tell me that what I feel is right. Please don't leave me, now that I am crippled. My body's recovery takes days, though it bears no difference to me. Broken or no, I will never fly again. Crawling along by my hands is humiliating, so I stay in place. Felix carts me around as Lilla prepares to take me from the center. I'm relieved when we've left, and he settles me on a cushion near a window. It takes too much insistence of my well-being to convince him to leave. I assure him that the view is enough for now. Still, as time passes, the glass becomes a cruel barrier. It shows me the grass and sky, dangling them and taunting my inabilities. I cannot smell or hear the batch of flowers out there, only watch as they sway. My hands habitually grab for something that isn't there. They're incomplete and empty. I wish to be moved, but asking is too large a task. So I sit and watch and weep. You breathe my name, and I realize with embarrassment that you've been here a while. Somehow, I did not hear you. I am all right, truly. Go on. Your final battle is on the horizon. You should train for it. But rather than leave, you do something curious. You tuck one arm under my tail and wrap the other around my back. I grasp you in near panic, and you giggle when I ask if you can even lift me. It is different than being carried by a bouncing seal. Your flight is so steady and smooth, it's only the wind that denotes motion. As we glide through the building and out an open window, you begin to, not buzz, hum, melodiously. Taking cues from Felix now, are you? I've never been one for such music. Do not stop. The air is clean and smells of flowers. I can hear them, a village of white, pink, and purple friends. They're joyful to see us. You pause at each group and allow me to greet them. Being among them is almost healing, but even a homecoming after such tragedy cannot cure what is broken. Your efforts are noble, however. The humming stops. We stare at each other, and it may have caused my heart to jump a bit. You ask if this hurts. It does only as a reminder of what I have lost. All the same, I need them, really and truly. How on earth could I continue on without what I hold so dear? However much suffering they may bring, it would destroy me to let them go. If they ever cast me aside, so be it. But for me to deny myself their beauty, their kindness, and the sound of their laughter would be the most foolish thing I could conceive. I love them too much, you see. I hold my breath. Your expression is the softest and most lovely thing, and I wish always invoke the feeling in you that makes it. I love you too. And there we shall leave Poppy and Zuri for now. We'll be back one last time to check in on them in our next episode. Next, we return to All That We Are. Previously, Dalna had set off along with Eora and Cantor to search for the Wellspring, the one thing that can rejuvenate Unova. Did we ever truly realize the Wellspring's potential? How could we have known that the very font of creation, the potential to remake the world, lay beneath our feet? To think that for generations we overlooked the beating heart of the world itself, only opening our eyes as the world turned to ruin. All That We Are by Erberor Part 2 Striatin Day 7 They can fight. Oh, gods, they can fight. We ran into a bunch of centrets, and they didn't stand a chance. Before I could turn to run, Eora jumped and started beating the hell out of them, her giant toothy grin never leaving her face. Cantor followed in and drove off some of them with a few swipes of his sword, and it was over. And because of that, 
We had meat at dinner. I can't even remember the last time I've eaten meat, and while it didn't taste all that good, I couldn't stop eating it. I feel like I should be rationing some for later, but I can't help it. Wait, didn't Mom say the first sign of an upcoming evolution is a big appetite spike? Oh, damn it. Hope we can get to the Striaton ruins before that starts. I need somewhere to hide. On that note, Cantor's been telling me about his plan as we've walked. He says the wellspring is at the Victor's Summit, in the far north of Unova. I think that's where the ruins of the old Pokemon League are? I remember reading something about it in one of the books Mom had. It's hard to imagine that, at some point, humans were able to control those monsters. I know that they were a lot less dangerous before the Calamity, but I can't wrap my head around it. Maybe it's something to do with being fully human. I guess Kindred just lack whatever it is that would let us tame Pokemon. Right, the plan. Cantor says there are eight emblems needed to unlock the path to the Wellspring, and the first is somewhere in the ruins of Striaton. I asked him where the emblems are, but he dodged the question, so he doesn't even know what he's looking for. I don't know what to make of it. Eora is convinced beyond doubt that they'll succeed, but I don't see that in Cantor. He doesn't have the same spirit, and with how Eora is always charging ahead, I'm thinking she's the one pulling him along. Day 8 Eora says we'll make it to the ruins by tomorrow night. I don't really know how she manages to keep track of where we are so well. Anytime Cantor starts thinking we're off track, she grabs his map, climbs the nearest tree for a few minutes, and figures out where we are before coming down and smacking him with the rolled-up map. Honestly, the sooner we get there, the better. I've started feeling really strange, almost like I'm not totally in control of myself. I keep having urges to find somewhere to hide, somewhere small and dark, and I can't stop eating fruit and roots, anything. I keep grabbing leaves and grass and chewing on it without thinking. I think Eora is noticing. Not sure about Cantor. That being said, I haven't eaten this well since Mom went missing. Eora has a nose for food unlike anything I've ever seen. And in spite of eating enough for two people her size, she still manages to scour enough to practically, literally, drop piles of berries and fruit onto me and Cantor. My hair still smells like Pecha after this morning. Day 9 We finally got to Striaton. It was a bit surreal, walking into a town that hasn't been inhabited for, what, 200 years? Everything that isn't stone is just gone, and even that is weathered and falling apart. We spent some time looking around for anything useful in the ruins, but everything of value was looted long before we arrived. We ran into a lot of Pokemon. I did find something of use at what I think was once a smithy, some charcoal. It's in chunks and really hard to hold, but that should let me keep writing for a while. Speaking of which, I really need to finish this up. The urge to set up a cocoon has gotten so strong that I can barely write. I told Cantor and Eora about it, and thankfully they took it well. We've set up camp in some other ruins the map labels as the Dream Yard. Though when I read that off the map, I learned something surprising. Neither Eora nor Cantor can read. When I suggested we head to the Dream Yard to make camp, they both turned their heads, no idea what I was talking about, until I pointed at the map and read it aloud. I mean, it makes sense that they don't know how to read. They probably never had access to any books growing up, but... It still feels weird. Maybe it's because Mom taught me when I was so young. I guess I just assumed everyone else got taught the same way. This is it, then. In a few days, I'll be able to fly. I don't know if my wings will be a butterfly's or a dustox's, but I don't really care. All that matters is that finally I'll be able to fight for myself. Though, 
I still don't know how I'm going to tell them I'm leaving. Maybe it'd be best if I just... don't. Maybe I could stay with them for a little while longer. They're my friends. I've been happier these past few days than I have in months. <sighs> Nothing feels like the right choice. I don't know what to do anymore. Questions abound. What will Valna's new wings look like? Will she stay with her new friends or fly to pastures new? And will the group succeed in securing the first of the emblems they need? We'll learn more in our next episode. Conveniently enough, All That We Are prominently uses a certain sort of character known as a Gajinka. For those unfamiliar with the term and hoping to learn more, be sure to stay tuned for our upcoming discussion segment. For right now though, it's time for another promotion segment. One night at the outset of summer, an adopted teenage girl receives a message in her dreams telling her to search for her true parents. In the early morning darkness, she takes her pet Chikorita and runs away from home to set out on a journey across Johto. Along the way, she quickly discovers that her journey has blossomed into something she never could have thought possible, and that following your dreams sometimes gives you more than what you bargain for. Summer Storm is a story of heart, a story of dreams, and most of all, a story of family. That was a synopsis of Summer Storm, presented to us by Metafiction, the run's author. If you're interested in seeing the story unfold, be sure to look in the description for this episode for a link to the story. G'day, and welcome to the discussion segment. We're back again with Gar and Rad. Say hi, guys. Howdy. Hello, hello. Nice to have you back. We've also got a special guest for this episode. So, Kirill, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hey, I'm Kirill. Uh, I haven't been a member of the Nuzlocke Forums for very long, but it's been an absolute blast, and I'm excited to be here helping with you all. Great. So, the reason we have an extra special guest today is because we're going to be going over something which is pretty niche, even amongst Nuzlocke's, and that's Gajinkas. So, Gajinka runs in Nuzlocke have been pretty popular over the years, ever since they emerged. So, I thought it was only appropriate that we have an episode dedicated entirely to them. So, let's get on with our first question, and that is, just what in the heck is a Gajinka? Kirill, since you're our special guest, would you like to start? Mm -hmm. So... Essentially, at its basest form, a Gajinka is just an anthropomorphization of a Pokemon or like a humanization of a Pokemon, where they it might be a human with Pokemon features or it might be a Pokemon that now appears more human. There's a lot of wiggle room to that, but as long as it's a Pokemon that is more human than its original Pokemon form, that's pretty much a Gajinka. Yeah, how about I just go over the history for people that aren't familiar. So around 2003, each of the Windows operating systems got a personification called OS Tans. <laughs> they were pretty popular, but I don't believe people really remember them anymore. For Pokemon Gajinka, it was around early 2010s, it might have been 2013, a Japanese artist called Hitech released a bunch of very simplistic Gajinka designs. Either way, they took off, and before long everyone was drawing their own versions, and cosplayers were going completely nuts over them. <laughs> uh, also, people began hacking, doing ROM hack versions of the games to include cutesified Gajinkas called Moemon. So it was really only a matter of time before they became part of the Nuzlocke lexicon. I think these days most people are going to know Gajinka or Gajinka-style things from the various anime and gacha games that are using those for their characters. So we've got games like Token Ranbu, where they've taken all the Japanese swords and turned them into humans. <laughs> we got your Kantai collection for your ship girls. We got your girls frontline for your gun girls. I feel like when you're talking about a Nuzlocke run, we don't require them to be cute and or anime and or girls, but that's a lot of what you're going to see if you go out into that landscape. <laughs> Sometimes you'll get some hot boys like Token Ranbu, yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're a lot rarer. <laughs> Gal, do you have any input? I don't have a whole lot of input, but I can say that I do like quite a wide range of Gajinkas, at least in a Nuzlocke form, because I've seen everything from legit just straight humans, except they have either like Pokemon powers or they might even just be representative of Pokemon and use like weapons instead and just go with like a really gritty and realistic form of that mm. as a card carrying furry i do think people are wusses and don't do more animalistic gajinkas instead of just slapping a tail and some ears on them and calling it a day but i am totally biased in that regard so disregard me but i do really like just 
the range of that and i do think part of the reason it's taken on a life of its own on the nuz forums is because of the fun that can be had in redesigning or seeing redesigns of pokemon with more human features yeah kirill i believe you have a bit more to add to this Yeah, that actually was pretty much what I was going to say, that there's this huge variety where when someone thinks of Gajinkas, from my common knowledge, a lot of people tend to think of, oh, it's a person that wears clothes pertaining to the Pokemon, and maybe they have the ears for like an Eevee or like a tail for a Charizard to represent that they are part of that Pokemon. But really, it goes anywhere from even just a bipedal representation of an Eevee or another quadruped Pokemon just... There's this huge array, and people tend to think of Gajinkas as like the highest form of where it's just a human with slight Pokemon modifications. Well, hopefully we've made it clearer for everyone that wasn't sure before, so let's move on to our next question then. How do Gajinka Nuzlocks and their settings differ from the norm? Would anyone like to start? One thing I notice is, at least in some regard, it takes animals out of the equation. At the very least, the Pokemon form of animals, generally speaking which is a blessing and a curse. Part of it is that it's closer to our world, I guess, and being able to just write a bunch of humans can be a lot more natural instead of worrying about anthropomorphizing chickens or adjusting society to the presence of high-powered monsters, figuring out how a literal fish fights a literal bird. Like, there's a lot of weird logistics in Pokemon world that you have to think about. So going to a more Gajinka-centric world can help kind of smooth out a lot of that but at the same time it can be a little uncanny for a pokemon story to not have pokemon and there's still so 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 much world building to do in its own right from how regulations and laws change given that we now have humans with crazy powers to just like lore behind the existence of Gajinkas themselves and whether it's just kind of hand-waving it or not really giving it much mind or really really hitting it hard to the point where it's the focus of the story I think a lot of times the setting takes a lot of precedence in a Gajinka Nuzlocke because it's so different yeah true when it comes to the world building, it might often feel more like you're world building for like a superhero story rather than specifically yeah. a Pokemon one. Because you have to sort of think about how all that works and how the laws work, how the society reacts to that sort of thing. It, it can work similarly if you're doing that sort of story, but obviously it depends on what level of humanity is around and how that meshes in. I've seen some runs where there's both Gajinkas and Pokemon, and that always can work pretty oddly. It's like, well, how does that come about? And how do these two species? species differ exactly what does that mean for trainers if they are around there can have some be some really interesting kind of explorations of the differences between human and pokemon and how much really separates everyone and all that kind of stuff and especially when you get into questions of sentience and all it's it can be really really engaging Yeah, so there generally has to be a lot more world building because we've got the original games and they tend to be centered around Pokemon. But now that we've got Gajinkas, you have to obviously change that to suit them instead. So I think one of the more obvious differences for Gajinka runs is they get rid of Pokeballs as they're not needed. (laughs) Yeah, so that means a team will travel all together instead of being stored away. So it means that, you know, generally, if you want to get a team member now, you don't just throw a ball at them. (laughs) That'd be pretty mm-hmm. rude. But it does mean you have to figure out some <laughs> so, other method of working them into a team. Yeah, sort of like a recruitment process instead. And also, people tend to do the notepad clause. That's where a team will stay at the maximum of six until someone dies, and then you can introduce a new character. Right, right. I do think that that can go hand in hand with what you mentioned about alternate recruitment, I guess, because we often see in Gajinka runs where it's kind of like the creator's forced to give every single team member their own motivations and drives and reasons for wanting to go on a journey, which mm. is really interesting because obviously that's not really much of a thing when it's Pokemon that you're catching, but now that you have this big, huge cast of humans, you suddenly have to figure out this huge ensemble cast and make sure that everyone is properly fleshed out enough to be able to be in it at least theoretically for the long haul we'll expand a bit on that in the next question so Kirill is there anything you would like to add 
Actually, as I was listening to y'all, I kind of realized where y'all were talking about runs where Pokemon and Kijinkas coexist and the logistics of that. Just from my personal view, I'm writing a run where Pokemon, humans, and Kijinkas all coexist within the same pseudo-canon universe. Because I've never done a full Kajika story, so I didn't realize that there were so many intricacies that people kind of, not necessarily retconned per se, but had to like work around like the Pokeballs and using the notepad clause because there's no PC. All of these different things coming into play, but that's also just one facet of Kajikas, I suppose, because there's also the facet of working on the relationships between Kajinkas and the other species. So, for example, in the world with Gajinkas and Pokemon, how do Gajinkas compare to Pokemon? Are they considered equal, superior, inferior? Same with Gajinkas and humans. There's that species where Gajinkas are superhuman in a sense, but how does that play into their relationship with quote-unquote regular humans? Yeah, that is a much bigger question to think about. Okay, so our last question is going to be focused more on writing. So what are some of the challenges that come with writing Gajinka casts? I'll start off on this one. Uh, so I think for me, one of the biggest challenges is how battles are conducted. So you have a team that lacks a trainer calling the shots. So the way you write fights definitely needs to be different. I get the feeling that some people would find it easier since you're cutting out a lot of the extra interference from the trainer. So you're going back and forth, back and forth on what to do. However, I still think there may be some hurdles since you're lacking that trainer, but you still need a team that needs to work together. So you need to work out things like how they decide to swap out. What are their team strategies or do they just focus on individual strength? How do they handle communications and relationships when someone isn't being a team player? So although Gajinka groups might have a leader, I think most runs generally tend to have a starter as a leader or someone who takes over mm -hmm. later on. You still need to, you know, deal with six people who have got their own ideals and goals. So I think that's a much different dynamic from a trainer and their Pokemon. Although, Kirill, you said that there are trainer runs with Gajinkas? Mm-hmm. There definitely is a different dynamic as to if a Gajinka team has a trainer, the difference in is the trainer the leader or is the trainer just another member of the team? Because once again, bringing into the whole like Gajinkas will have more powers than a human, but if it's a human at the helm, does that change like the dynamic? Hmm, true. And you have to decide if there's going to be a bit of a... um. Like an unequal power dynamic. Yeah. Yes, that's a yes, good way of... Power yeah, dynamics. if there's going to be an unequal power dynamic, then how's the trainer going to get everything sorted? Because mm -hmm. there's already, like, some level of that inherently just in regular Pokemon runs, because it's like, yeah, I'm a human. It's like, yeah, you're a human, but I can breathe fire. <laughs> yeah, with a human and Pokemon, you've got the sort of, like, pet and owner thing going on. But if you've can got I... a human trainer... <laughs> oh, yes, Kirill. Can I just speak from, like, what I'm personally writing from my run for a second? Yes, I would like to know about that, please. Yeah, so in my run, humans, Pokemon, and Gajinkas all live in the same universe. And the gym challenge is still a thing, trainers still command Pokemon, but there's also this layer where Gajinkas are, lore-wise, Arceus created them to be an in-between between the Pokemon and the trainers as this mutual understanding to bring all three species mm. closer together but after Arceus kind of disappears or like just doesn't rule the world properly the Gajinkas kind of become the bottom of the barrel in the sense that humans have enslaved Pokemon pretty much through the gym challenge and humans see Gajinkas kind of as inferior humans so they're worse than Pokemon because they couldn't be strong and they couldn't be weak whereas the Pokemon fear the Gajinkas because they're closer to the humans, and humans are subjugating the Pokemon. So there's really no win from either side for the Kajinkas. Mm, that is a really interesting dynamic, having that extra layer in there to compound things. I think one thing that's really interesting for me to consider is just properly representing a species. To get the Gajinka part clear, both in human actions and Pokemon actions, part of it can come down to the design and how human versus Pokemon they are. But I feel like there still definitely has to be some level of mixture there for them to feel like, oh yeah, this is definitely a uh, Florgus, or oh yeah, like I can definitely see how they're uh, Fennekin or something like that. 
And especially when you're talking about story locks, you don't have the visual medium to be able to portray that. So you need to really go hard to make sure that each character slash species is distinct in their own ways and that they really bring that species to life while also not becoming a caricature or a stereotype of a species of course yeah you sort of have to walk the line between how you represent the species in the character without making the species their character yeah that's a good way of putting it because yeah you do want to have that pokemon element to it and not just have everyone be like from avatar running around with their various powers but they're all humans and springboarding off of that, different Pokemon species themselves would probably behave differently with each other if they were on more equal footing, because a Pidgey eats a Caterpie, like that's sort of canon baseline Pokemon. A bird eats a worm, a Pidgey eats a Caterpie, but what happens when that Pidgey and that Caterpie are now both approximately like human is there still that power dynamic, or that's something that a lot of people have to decide upon? Or do you at least have to adjust that power dynamic to a human standard rather than an animalistic one? Or obviously you can go about trying to subvert it based on characters, but there is definitely a lot of transposing that has to be done to make everything authentic and feel proper from a human societal perspective rather than just, just a wild world out there. Yeah, I was talking to someone that has a comic who has Gajinkas, and they considered the idea that various species, they might evolve sooner than other species, or they might have shorter lifespans, and that creates a different dynamic between all the different species as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that line, what does evolution mean in a Gajinka run? Yeah, that's a big question. I don't know if it's something that we can answer easily because evolution for Gajinkas is probably different in every single run. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it can be wildly different from something that's very close to what Pokemon does, where it's very instantaneous, to a much more gradual thing where it's like, you know, their hair gradually changes color, grows longer or something. Hmm. Can we think of anything else? I mean, you do have to take in all the struggles with just working with a six-month cast and having them all sort of have to stand out from each other. But I guess you do have that in non-Gajinka runs as well, but it's something that you are kind of forced to do. Yeah, it's not like you can just put them away in a ball and just yeah. <laughs> yeah. until they're relevant. <laughs> no, it's an actual literal posse wandering around the region like it's West Side Story. Yeah. Like, you have a full-on <laughs> ensemble that all need screen time, and that more or less they're all on screen. Because they can kind of go off and do their own things. It does depend on the run and what kind of premise you have going. But generally they can't split off all that much. So you're going to have to deal with a lot of scenes with a lot of people, with a lot of emotions and complexities and character arcs that all need screen time so that they don't feel undercooked. As someone who works with really small casts, because I like only feel comfortable with small casts, it sends a shiver down my spine just thinking about trying to balance all that, honestly. Mm, Yeah, that's definitely a challenge. There's one thing we haven't brought up, and that is the question of deaths in a Gajinka run. Oh, jeez. Yeah, because it's one thing when a Pokemon dies, because it's sort of like the same level as when a pet dies, but... Having an actual, like, human in a team and they've sort of become a family and they die. I will say that in Gajinkarons, I think there is more of an opportunity to explore alternate versions of death or alternate departures, we'll call it, where... Yes, that's a good idea. You can kind of write their arcs or explain things in a way where they go off to do another thing or they have another mission or whatever the case may be, where they retire or just some shit happens and they have to reconsider all their life decisions. So I do think that there are a lot of opportunities to avoid death, but at the same time, you're right. That can be incredible incredibly brutal to deal with yeah because family does tend to play a lot more into human stories mm-hmm. so you'll end up seeing gajinkas that have family back home and then oh if the character dies that's gonna be really awkward yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> dear team members mum and dad <laughs> we're sorry <laughs> it's actually really interesting though how like we've all been bringing this up but there's this inherent fact that giving a pokemon a human body somehow makes them 
not necessarily more relatable, but you expect them to be more relatable, more human, just because we have given them a human form. Yeah, that's very true. There are so many really good runs that have characters who can talk to Pokemon. And even though these Pokemon are considered not necessarily closer, but a little bit more relatable because we can understand what they're saying and we can empathize with them, it's still very different from this level of this Pokemon was a person. Mm-hmm. All right, well, those were fantastic answers, everybody. Uh, so Kijinka runs are definitely very different when you think about it. And I'd love to see more writers try their hand at them. So thank you, Rad and Gar, for joining me once more. And especially to Kirill for coming in as a special guest. Say bye, everyone. Later, y'all. Sayonara. Bye. All right, and let's get back to our regularly scheduled readings. Bye, everyone. For our final segment, we return to Ashes to Ashes. In the last chapter we featured, we learned of Ho-Oh's plans for Ash's daughter, Ashley. Once again, I'll hand it over to the author of Ashes to Ashes, Bowser's Family Vacation, to introduce the next featured chapter. A Gift is the fourth chapter of Ashes to Ashes posted, but it contains Ashley's first encounter with Ho-Oh. Ho-Oh's gift transforms Ashley's relationship with her partner Pokemon buddy, and, in divine judgment, transforms her into a true successor of Ash Ketchum, a chosen one, despite the, you know, ableism. But Ash and Ashley end up having very different relationships with the Rainbow Pokemon. Ashes to Ashes by Bowser's Family Vacation A Gift As Tun was absorbed back into the still fabric of the night, Buddy tore a hole in it, running ahead with his sparks our funeral candlelight. I could feel the eyes on our backs from the bushes as we scampered up the well-worn dirt path to Viridian City. I now knew what a Rattata felt like as a Pidgeotto circled overhead. Sometimes I even swore that I saw shapes creeping towards us, but in a flash of thundershock, the shadows dissipated. In one of the moments that I was briefly blinded by the light, I heard a crunch. Recognizing the sound of a bone breaking, as I did, Buddy snapped his attention to me. Buddy, I... He jumped onto my lap and started examining my arms. There was no way my legs had broken. I hadn't moved them. I wasn't glass. There was no way I had broken my arms either, though. I think I ran over. But the Pikachu barked at me and resumed his trailblazing. It was obvious what that meant. Buddy, we need to find that Pokemon I ran over. I pivoted my wheels, raised an arm to my forehead, and squinted, peering into the thick blackness. Unlike Pallet Town, which had street lights, however infrequent, Route 1 had no source of light. No source of light, that is, except Buddy. That was why I saw him approaching and was able to evade. Initially. The mouse Pokemon was too agile. He grabbed my wheelchair and pushed it. Even as the street lights at the entrance to Viridian City became visible, I looked back the entire time. I didn't see the Pokemon. I didn't look ahead of me until Buddy pushed me into the Viridian City Pokemon Center. I had gone to lots of Pokemon Centers. I knew that they existed in all regions as a free source of healing, food, and basic lodging for travelers, paid for through the region's taxes. I knew that the primary Pokemon staffing the centers differed by region. Audino and Unova, Wigglytuff and Kalos, and the Chansey line everywhere else. I knew that the woman behind the counter was Nurse Joy, and the woman in the back, and the woman manning the machines, and the woman cocking her head at me. All Nurse Joy. Always Nurse Joy. Where are your parents, little one? I couldn't blow up on her. Nurse Joys are useful. I informed her that I was a trainer. Calmly. She frowned. I'm sorry, can you speak up? My hand hardened into a fist. Before she could test me any further, though, Buddy came to my rescue, jumping onto the counter. Oh, you have such a cute Pikachu! The one behind the counter squealed. Buddy looked at me. He had done his part. Now I needed to do mine. Seizing the opportunity, I pointed to the hallway, where I knew trainer lodging was. Somehow, my pantomimes made more sense than just talking to them. Oh! The one currently not ogling at Buddy exclaimed. Right this way! We have a room with a low bed that someone with your challenges should not have difficulty getting into. Look at you, chubby munchkin! Buddy leapt off the counter just as the nurse Joy made a move to pinch his cheeks. This time, he was the one looking back. The Nurse Joy finally left us alone once I demonstrated that I was indeed capable of getting into the bed by myself. First order of business, get out of here, I groaned. Buddy nodded resolutely in agreement. 
As he crawled into a spot under my arms, I could almost pretend that I was home. But I knew the stench of hospitals too well to deceive myself. Hospitals were never so... colorful. I was floating in a rainbow sea, but all too quickly that blissful feeling of weightlessness drained out as I heard a pair of flapping wings. I instinctively looked up, but there was nothing. When I looked ahead of me, though, I was face to face with a god. Its beak was literally touching my nose. Because it was so close to me, I couldn't recognize it until it stretched its neck in tandem with its glowing wings. Papa told me that on the first day of his journey, he met the rainbow Pokemon. He didn't tell me, though, that it was rainbow because it absorbed the colors from everything else. The prism does not describe you accurately, it suddenly boomed. I cocked my head in confusion. It stepped towards me until I was enveloped in its silhouette. The light needs the lightning strike, as the prism needs the thunderclap, it said, almost to itself. I grunted. Buddy had fallen into my arms, and he was glaring at the god. Instead of smiting the Pikachu on the spot, though, the phoenix's head twitched. It suddenly buried it in its wing. I have not had an emissary like this in a long time. It snapped its wing against its side. The prism's mission has been passed down to the light, as a progenitor passes down to progeny. There is a puppeteer controlling the shadows washing over this land that will wash over all lands. In order to defeat the puppeteer, however, the light must vanquish the shadow. What? I uttered. I tried to dissect its words piece by piece. What's a progenitor? It truly is not a word mortals use. Excuse me? Progenitor is... daughter. That is the mortal word. Gen... generate? The one that generates? Papa! I exclaimed. Do you know my papa? Its brow furrowed. I know my emissary. Where's my papa? Is he hurt? Is Pikachu with him? What about- The color started to fade. What's happening? The phoenix was not concerned. Before I leave you, Light, I bestow upon you a gift. I jolted up in bed. Ho-oh. It had to be ho-oh. It had red like Moltres, but it was huge, and it glittered like morning dew, and it said it had knew Papa, and Papa met ho-oh on the first day of his journey, and- I remembered what ho-oh had said. Where's my gift? It's presence. There are Pokemon that think that qualifies as a gift. I should have been shocked, but I had been dreaming with Buddy pressed up against my cheek for five years. What was surprising was that he sounded exactly like I thought he would. A little grump. It would seem not all gifts come in boxes and wrapping paper. How will Ashley come to grips with her new ability? Only time will tell. As always, we'd like to thank our readers, Silverdo, Plain Yogurt, Bowser's Family Vacation, and Kirill Punk. Our editors, CJ Apples and Song With No Soul, our producer, Flop, and the rest of the Writer's Lock crew for bringing this project to life. And of course, another thanks to Gamaliel for our theme music, C-Made for arranging our jingles, and Nazimba for the wonderful cover art. Thank you all for listening. This has been The Writer's Lock. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>